Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Authors at a Glance. I'm your host, Bridget, and today we are interviewing author Scarlett Peckham. If you guys have been around for a while, hey, friends. We did The Duke I Tempted as our first ever episode of season one of this podcast, and I have to say, stumbling upon her at the panel that we went to turned out to be just one of the best things that ever happened because... First of all, the book is awesome. If you haven't listened to our review, make sure you check it out and for sure read it. And you can imagine, dear listeners, that it is Shawnee's heaven because it is historical meets kink. And, you know, she's a kinky historical lady. And I also, even though I'm a historical noob and not super into the historicals, loved every second of it. So make sure you check that out. You can go to Romance at a Glance and find our review and find some links to buy the book. We make a small commish if you buy it from us. And other than that, you guys, we covered a lot of topics. Scarlet's a delight. We had so much fun. And we hope that you guys like listening in and tuning in. Let's get it popping. Romance at a glance. Uh-huh. Romance at a glance. What you Romance at a glance. Go ahead, girl. It's Hi, Scarlett. Thank you for being here. It's so great to see you again. Hi, ladies. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you. You're one of my favorite authors. I think I've already told you that. So this is like, (laughs) I'm very happy today. Yes, we, uh, your books are some of our highly, highest rated books on the podcast. And we just got told by someone that we are ruthless. So uh, <laughs> feel, feel good about your good ratings. All right. <laughs> there was no bigger compliment than to be told that I was ruthless. I was like, really? This is so great. <laughs> I also I enjoy it. Yeah, I like being called ruthless too. I get it. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> but like your books are, are some of my favorite because they mix my two favorite things, which is historical and BDSM. So <laughs> makes me excited. I'm very excited about it. Awesome. Me too. What are your favorite parts of romance? Like what's your favorite sort of, I mean, you write historical, so presumably you like it, but what's your, <laughs> what's your catnip? Uh, my catnip is usually trope oriented. Like there are some that just really get me going. Like one bed at the inn, I will read almost any one bed at the inn book. And it's fine if it's like one bed at the boutique hotel or one bed in like the luxury airplane going to Taiwan. I don't know. I I don't care where the one bed is, but as long as there's one bed, I'm very happy camper. Um, I love, I love, um, uh, marriage of convenience and historical romance. I'm not such a fan of it in contemporary. I don't know why. Um, I guess maybe it's just harder for me to suspend my disbelief that anyone would actually like be in a situation where they would have to get married um, when it's not like a visa issue. I don't know. Ugh, that's neither here nor there. I love it in historical. Um, it also seems like an absolute nightmare to me. So I like the kind of tension of like it being both the best and the worst. Um, yeah, I think I'm drawn to situations that like sound excruciatingly uncomfortable and then can be mined for their excruciating discomfort in the process toward falling in love and having sexy times. That's That's really what does it for me. Yeah, I feel like that's super accurate to your books because there are some moments <laughs> where I'm like, oh, that is so uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and uh, uh, crazy enough, my my parents got married because my dad was uh, about to be deported. So. Really, <laughs> it happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but and I'm curious to know uh, more about um, when you're writing a series. Um, do you know exactly what's happening before you start writing? Have you mapped out what's happening in every book? before you even put your pen to paper? Do you do it as you go along? What's your, what's that look like for you? We're very curious because people do it differently. And I'm just, I, just, I need to know. Uh, not for my first series. Um, the Charlotte Street series, like I sort of just began with an idea of like submissive Duke and went from there. And then once I sort of developed this idea of having a whipping house, I was like, I want to keep the whipping house, but then I knew that I wanted the second book to be called the Earl I ruined. That was a title I had like way before I had the Duke I tempted. I just loved the idea of it. So it's like, how do I fit this in? And then the whole thing is kind of cobbled together. But then in the second book, I sort of arrived at the persecution of people uh, who are trying to freely express their sexual choices and privacy um, by a sort of conservative uh, faction of society. And since that obviously rings true to today, unfortunately, I was like, there we go. That's the series arc. Um, so that's, that's how I got to that. It wasn't sort of predetermined. And then my next series, one that um, I'm doing with Avon, The Society of Sirens, I do have the whole thing kind of mapped out. And it's much more uh, like we set it up from the very beginning that there's this big macro problem. And then they will, the ladies will be trying to solve it throughout the course of the book. So obviously you started out with your first trilogy as an indie author, and now you're with Avon for this current, is it a trilogy or quartet? Yeah, it'll be, well, uh, the Charlotte Street books will not be a trilogy. I'm going to write definitely a fourth one, maybe more. And then oh, okay. the Avon books are a trilogy. Okay. So how, how did that jump go from, like, did you get, did you approach them with an idea? Did they approach you based on the popularity of your books? We've been talking back and forth from before I went indie. Like we, um, we, my agent and I put uh, the Duke I tempted on submission, and it did not sell to anyone, including Avon. Uh, but there was a lot of like people liked it, but they were like, "This is wild! You can't do this in historical." And I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, I'll do it myself." And I'm really glad I did because it was really fun to self-publish, and I love self-publishing, and will continue. It's a blast, and I like having control over everything. Like. A complete fucking dictator. So that's great for me. <laughs> um, but because like Avon had been really excited about like the voice and certain aspects of the story, even though it wasn't one for them, uh, we kept talking, we had like some lunches. So there was like an open dialogue. And then when uh, the Charlotte Street book started doing really well, they were like, okay, maybe let's try something. And I was interested in getting more penetration into bookstore <laughs> penetration. I was interested. <laughs> um, me too, me too. Oh, yeah, 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 right? <laughs> it's harder as an indie, especially one who doesn't have a huge backlist, to get into, like, the Barnes and Nobles and the whatever, you know, like, bookstore chains, the Walmarts, the Targets, um, with, you know, your meager Ingram Spark uh, one or two book backlist. It's just almost impossible unless a specific buyer at a specific store orders the books. So there are a lot of still um, people who like, you know, to go to the bookstore and pick out some romance novels and take them home. And I didn't want 
to lose the possibility of having my work reach those people. So it was like, okay, Avon, I have this idea for this um, wild book. Do you want to do it? And they were like, okay, we'll try. (laughs) And here we are. (laughs) Well, the response, I mean, obviously we don't see your sales numbers, but the response in terms of like people posting about it and the buzz around it has been super positive. Yeah, I'm happy with it. Um, It's, it's, it's a very strange romance novel. Um, I will be the first to say that. Uh, and it's kind of straddling the line of a lot of different things. So it was sort of hard to figure out how to position it. But I think, yeah, it's it's getting people like excited and that always makes me happy. So you mentioned I think agent, and I'm curious for people who don't really know how like book publishing really works behind the scenes. Did yeah. you, have, you said, had your agent before you published indie or was that agent someone who came along and like what other people do you now have on your team helping facilitate <laughs> the facilitate the sort of book enterprise that is Scarlett Beckham? My giant team. Yeah. <laughs> They're all scattered around the room, furiously yeah. taking notes. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. I have a cat. Um, <laughs> my cat is my team and she's asleep. Um, okay, well, this how it all came together for me, and I think every author has like a kind of wild uh, path to publishing and it's different for everyone. But I, um, when I first started writing romance, had just assumed that since I was writing historical, I should try to traditionally publish it. Because at the time when I started, which was like 2015, I just wasn't seeing a lot of books that were successfully indie published in historical romance. Like all the authors I read were pretty much coming out from traditional publishers. Um, so I just assumed that was like how it was done. And that if you couldn't find a traditional publisher, like it would be really hard to get any traction. So I wrote some books. I submitted them in, um, RWA's, uh, old contest, the golden heart, uh, which had its problems, but it can be very helpful for, um, you know, uh, unpublished or yet to be published romance authors back in the day. I have since severed my ties with RWA for <laughs> various reasons. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but they were very helpful to me at a certain time and it's too bad they couldn't be more helpful to a broader swath of people. That's a different conversation. Anyway, um, I was a finalist in this contest and agents and publishers actually really took the contest seriously, which was great. And I met my agent after getting um, some offers of representation. I'd already been querying and winning that contest sort of helps, did help, past tense. This is all like five years ago. Um, Anyway, so I got my foot in the door with agents that way. Um, And then my agent took my book, the first one, The Duke I Tempted, out on submission. It did not sell. And so it was like, okay, well, you got a lot of like positive feedback. They just want something that's more like you know, familiar. Yeah. Um, so you can write something that's sort of in the same voice, but doesn't have all the weird shit in it, or we could just indie publish this. And my agency, Nancy Yost Literary Agency, my agent is Sarah Younger. Um, and Nancy's like the owner of the agency, uh, have a little, like, um, it's not an imprint. They're not a publisher, but they just have like a service to help authors self-publish, which gave me a measure of comfort because I had never done anything on my own like that. And I had no idea what I was doing. And I felt like it could be a cool book because I hadn't seen anyone do any, or, there were a couple of people sort of doing it a little bit, but I don't think anyone 
had really like done it the way that I had done it. Um, obviously, that's sort of the goal when you write a book. <laughs> to write a book no one has written yet. Anyway, so I was like, you know what? Like, let's try to give this like the kind of debut it would get if it had a publisher and I will use all the resources that my agency can muster and all the resources that I can muster because I have a background in PR. I entered at a literary agency. Like I, I had some sort of skills to bring to the table. Um, and so rather than try to write like a more familiar, like commercially supposedly commercially viable book. I was like, let's just make this one as like weird and vibey and feminist and like angsty and just do all the things that are in my aid um, and see if it like works. And then if it doesn't work, okay, fine. I'll write a different book, you know? And lucky me, <laughs> it kind of works. Not for everyone, but for enough people that it developed you know a little bit of traction on the internet and then sold pretty well and then that led to other things so I'm happy it all worked out splendidly <laughs> well I mean we I, sure I think, think that yeah we we for sure think it's awesome and yeah. um and I actually think you're I always say like there's a book that comes out that every author tries to to copy you later and you then you get a bunch of really bad versions of the original <laughs> You know, and you, I feel like your I feel like your book is like one that people would copy. Like you'll see, I feel like in the next year or two, you're gonna see a lot of copycats doing what you're doing. So I think so. I love it. I'm, I'm I support you. You know I do. Um, and I'm I'm curious how you go about um, building your characters when you're thinking about building your characters. Um, what are you pulling from? What are you using to make sure? that um, they're unique, like solidifying their voice um, and what, what inspires you when you're writing? Uh, I pull a lot of stuff from biographies um, and also just sort of, I like to mine tropes for both their romantic and nightmarish qualities and then map that duality onto a type of person who can sort of bring out both the darkness and the light in that trope. So for instance, when I was thinking of writing The Lord I Left, which is the third book in the Charlotte Street series, which is about sort of a, an apprentice at a whipping house who's kind of a housekeeper, but exploring becoming more of um, a sort of sex worker who practices domination on clients um, and a minister. And it's a one bed at the intrope. And I was just like, how fun is it to have like this very sexually open, experienced, um, she's, she's sort of from, I'm not going to say the wrong side of the tracks, but more of like a, a laboring class family. Um, you know, she's not fancy. She's not classically educated or trained in any way. And then to have this minister who's so repressed and who um, is not sexually experienced, he's a virgin and her extremely bad mouth and kind of raucous ways and lively character are so at odds with the restraint that he's constantly trying to impose on himself and then they're in this very forced proximity environment and like that's to me like kind of an explosive setup like there's just so much there to mine in terms of character work and then it's like okay what is the lived experience for a sex worker in 1750 I have tons of like cultural anthropologies of the 18th century um that I rely on and they get very specific like it's kind of amazing what you can find if you just like go through like unpublished or not unpublished, but out of print sort of academic texts. 
um, or like JSTOR. Like there's there's a really great information out there. And then um, for the minister character, I wanted him to be a Methodist because I wanted him to um, be sort of outside the Church of England and have a kind of like, um, like his relationship with God is not based on dogma. It's based on his personal experience because that was to me the only way you could like mash up these two people and have it become like a happy ending if he's not, if he doesn't care so much about what the church thinks about his choices. Um, and so then that led me to reading a bunch of biographies of John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement. And he inspired all of these little ticks that I stole for Henry, like, like keeping rigorous journals and constantly chiding himself for <laughs> the smallest little faults in character, like intellectual dishonesty, or there's one moment where he accidentally touches a woman's breast, um, like by, like he's brushing past her and he can't get out of his head and he's just excoriating himself. And I literally stole that wholesale for Henry Evesham in the book. Like, I don't know. So I, it's a mixture of like what kind of people would fit and then how do you play them off each other? And then what would their, their vibe be? And then, I don't know, then like plastering on other things that just seem to come organically from that. Like in that book, Alice is a musician and like on the, like the last edit that I did a month before the book came out, I was like, oh, you know what? They should just constantly be singing. And I went into the historical record and just found a bunch of um, hymns and broadsheet ballads, which make up like a huge part of the book now. It's kind of amazing that that only occurred to me at last minute because it seems so obvious in retrospect, <laughs> but like all that stuff is just taken from the moment of the time. And I think it makes them seem more like real people. So I don't know. It's like a cobbling together of this and that and putting all of that within the dynamic of the trope that makes it really juicy and like fun to read. Which character is your favorite? Do you have one that you really pull for um, every time? It's, a three-way tie between Archer, the Duke of Westmead from my first book, whom I love. Like, I just love him. I think he's such a mess. Bless his heart. <laughs> um, and um, Elena Brearley, who is the whipping governess in that series and who will be the heroine of the fourth book, which is tentatively... Ooh. Yeah, it's going to be called The Rogue I Ravished. And <laughs> I'm so excited to write it. Uh, I just love her. Like, she like takes no shit, gives no fucks. Like she's just so, she's a real, I don't know. She's like a mystery, but also I feel like she has a big expansive heart and that's kind of nice. Like the tension I really, between. I really liked her interactions with Poppy. Yeah. Yeah. Those like, are fun for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I love Serafina Arden from the Rakus. Like she's just, again, like a real mess but someone who, I don't know. I feel like there's more of me in that character than maybe any other character I've written. Like it's probably my most personal book. And like, um, she feels quite real to me. She feels more like a real person than probably any other character that I've written. So take us on your, a day writing with you. Like if we're a fly on the wall and you're mm -hmm. preparing to get ready to write, what does that look like? Where are you? What are you wearing? Where's your cat? <laughs> How? 
Um, the day begins on the couch drinking iced coffee. The cat is in my lap. Um, we have to play a little online Uno for the first like 20 minutes of the day, which is my kind of meditative way of waking up and preparing myself for the day. It started with during quarantine, like when COVID-19 trapped us all in our houses, I got really into online Uno. It's like this sick obsession now. Um, but yeah, so that's the beginning of any day. It's very important to my process. Um, and then I usually do emails and marketing stuff for like the morning. And sometimes I will then exercise. Um, all of this though, is sort of like, I feel like you have to sort of prepare your brain to be ready to write. And there's a lot of stuff happening in the background. So I usually write sort of mid-morning or afternoon, early afternoon when I still feel fresh, but there's been some time to let some ideas sort of marinate from the day before. Um, and then I go usually back to my couch. <laughs> I have an office. Um, I'm sitting here now, but I mainly use it to like do admin and stuff like this because it just doesn't feel very creative to me to sit at a desk. But um, yeah, I sprawl out on my couch and I open up Scrivener and then I just am in pure hell for like the next three hours with copious breaks. I'm not someone who, like, I love writing as a holistic process. I hate writing in the moment. I find it unbearable. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not very zen about it. And I'm, I'm not like an everyday, like I, I will die if I don't write every day or the, the book will die kind of writer. I 100% believe that like you get more out of your creativity if you give your brain time to just do stuff sort of subconsciously. So um, I'm not terribly rigorous about like butt and chair eight hours a day. And I know some writers are, but that just burns me out. Um, Do you, before before COVID, did you ever write at like cafes or other places or are you pretty typical? Do you get distracted easily? Mm, I get really distracted. I like can't listen to music. I can't have anyone talking. I can't have the TV on. I get annoyed if there's anyone else in the house, even like, Sometimes I'm just like, can you, to my husband, like, can you please leave? (laughs) I need complete and utter mental silence. So no, I don't really go anywhere. Um, But I'm kind of a shut-in anyway, in the best of circumstances. So I don't even know if I would go to a coffee shop if I could write with distractions. (laughs) So once, once the story is on the page, you've got draft one. Do you feel like you're, you're, post-production is more, or your editing rather, is more fine-tuning? Or do you sometimes feel like, oh, my book ended up in a completely different place than I started? Uh, Very much the latter. I write, I would say the first seven drafts are just pure id. Like they're just, like I, the person who usually reads them the earliest are my agent and my um, best friend, Emily. And they both, I feel like I've traumatized them with the shit that I put in like these early drafts. They're just, they're just so, they're like disturbing. Um, but I don't know, like I, I it just keeps happening. I, I think I have to get it all like out of my system and then I can kind of figure out, okay, where in this swamp, this morass of like, just weirdness um, is the actual story and what are the characters trying to do in it? And I, it's, it's always driven by a trope. So like the basic structure of a trope within a romance novel kind of writes itself. Like, you know, if you know you're doing one bed at an inn and you know, it's a romance novel, you know, that they have to be in some level of forced proximity. They have to eventually like, 
kind of get in this cataclysmic patch. Scarlett, we are, you are breaking up a little bit. Can you hear me? Yes, you're, oh, there you are. There you are. You're back. Okay. Where did you lose me? Uh, Right at the beginning of answering the question. Or not at at the beginning of, I guess, your last thought about it. So you. Oh, I don't even remember what I was talking about. Um, you said um, they read all these drafts. You don't even know where it comes from. And now, basically, you were starting with like, when I know I have a trope, I know they're going to come together. I know they're going to have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That part. Okay. So once I have this, let's call it the splooge draft done. Um, and that's usually like, you know, it's many drafts. I, the splooge draft is, is really like a process that takes like a couple of months. And then um, it will have the arc of the story in it because the arc is usually undeniable. You have the trope and then you have whatever the promise of that premise is and how it's going to be fulfilled. And then, you know, and they have to end up together somewhat optimistically in some way. So it's, um, that part is usually baked into that early draft. And then from there, it's more of a question of, are the plot mechanics working? How are these characters going to develop? Um, sentence level editing usually comes later in the process. I write somewhat clean, but I also write somewhat cliched and like boring. So then I spice everything up at the end. Um, it takes forever. I like write a million drafts and some of them I throw away entirely. And sometimes I have a plot twist that I don't invent until like draft 19 and that's annoying, but you know, (laughs) all in a day's work. Awesome. I I, I was just going to say, I have to say that all of your effort is good because the tension between the characters in your books is so good. Like Every time I'm like, come on, have, get it together. <laughs> like I am there with them. So we appreciate your due diligence. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we're, we're curious. So um, now that you have a few books under your belt, have you been approached or um, are you trying to adapt any of these for TV and film or um, have anything in the works like that? No, I have not been approached. I would love to be approached. If you're out there, have your people call my people. Um, I'm told it's hard to option historical romance because period pieces are so much more expensive to make. So um, I'm not exactly like staring at the phone waiting for the producers to call me, although I'm very receptive if they would like to. Um, But I do have a sort of hobby in writing rom-com screenplays another COVID activity um so I'm interested in film and tv but probably not as like a direct adaptation of my historical romance books so pre-COVID mostly because I'm sure your promotions for this book have been largely like this where you're on sort of digital meetups digital live streams things like that but prior to that um what is it like as an indie author promoting a book? Like what are some of the best ways you found to kind of get in front of different people? Uh, obviously sell physical copies of your books and just kind of get the word out. Um, I have found that if you just pretend uh, that you're traditionally published and don't 
really do anything differently, that that can work. (laughs) Um, So I don't really do, I wouldn't say that I have like a magic secret indie formula. I, um, when I debuted indie, um, I, I guess I spent maybe more time on Instagram than I've seen other authors do. Not that I was getting so much traction with the Instagram stuff I was doing, but I made, I think I made like the first chapter of the book, um, like illustrated it with little illustrated tiles, um, just to sort of set the vibe and like sort of establish my brand in a way that felt, um, I don't know, uh, like a statement. I wanted there to be kind of a statement about like, this is the look and feel, you know, I have a branding background. So that stuff comes kind of naturally to me. Um, and that's not really like a necessary step. I think that if you're looking to, you know, make some kind of splash in some way, when you're coming on the scene, um, you have to kind of do what you like to do. And for me making, you know, Canva graphics comes really naturally. And that's sort of a good way of expressing myself and, uh, expressing, you know, the themes and vibe of the book. So I did that. Um, but then I did a lot of really kind of normal things. Like I booked blog tours and, um, those are, you know, easy to come by. You can pay, um, a PR agency that specializes in romance novels, like a hundred bucks to book a tour for you. And they'll send out the book. You can put your book on NetGalley. I did that, which, um, then allows it to be read in advance by bloggers, librarians, um, excited readers, other novelists, people in general who follow books. Um, I tried to make friends and be somewhat visible on Twitter because romance Twitter is a very active community. And I think other authors find out about authors um, like so much through Twitter. Uh, I don't know that it's so... Um, lively for romance readers, but for romance bloggers and authors, like people are just on there chattering all day and people are really supportive about, you know, um, uh, signal boosting for authors whose work they're excited about. So that's cool. Um, And then I submitted the book to a lot of just trade reviewers, like the New York Times, Washington Post, um, you know, other places. And I was lucky that a handful of them actually wrote about the book. Um, I pitched it the way that I would pitch a PR article. Like it wasn't just like, hey, here's a link to my book. It was like, here's why I think you personally would like this book. And here's what the book is about. And here are the themes. You know, it was like a very targeted pitch. Um, So I think that helped get some traction. And, um, I don't know. I, I I think the one thing that traditional publishers, uh, are quite good at are arranging events with bookstores and stuff. It's harder for those of us in indie who don't have those relationships going back years and years to sort of jump on some of those, um, events. I think once you sort of are a known brand and you have friends who are writers, like there are some that writers just set up themselves. And so you can kind of get into them that way. Um, podcasting wasn't such a big thing in romance when I started, but if I were going to start now, I would reach out to some podcasters and be like, yo, I have this book. Like, I love your podcast. Maybe we should chat sometime. (laughs) I think that's harder if you are, um, debuting and there's no work to come back on. But if you're sort of early in your career, that's, an avenue that you can pursue. I don't know. It's really just any, um, 
any way that you engage with books, figure out a way to try that. Um, they're also, I mean, you can reach out to indie bookstores and uh, pitch them events. You can also pitch, like I did a pre-order campaign for the Rakus with the Ripped Bodice because I love the bookstore and I live in LA and I just emailed them and I was like, I want to do a pre-order campaign. Can we do something? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's easy to make friends with booksellers. You guys have the shared aim of selling books. So if you have a local indie, it's always nice to sort of just say hi, introduce yourself. And then if you want to send business their way, they're usually pretty cool with that. So <laughs> yeah, no one's saying no to that. They're like, great. Exactly. Yeah. You want to sell books? Okay. Let's sell books. <laughs> so you said you had a branding background. Um, that makes sense because we really liked the covers. Mm. Did you choose the, like, was it stock imagery that then got designed? Um, uh, so I have a designer who I think is a brilliant genius. Um, her name is Carrie and her company is called Arrow Gallery. And I just love her work. Um, the way that she works is you kind of give her a design brief and then she comes back with kind of a first draft. So she has picked all the stock imagery from those books, except no, I think I actually found the image for uh, the early ruins because I had this very clear vision of what Constance should look like. And there was this very awesome stock photograph that I had happened to see when I was storyboarding the book. Um, and so I, I chose that one. But other than that, like she chooses everything. She does the background and then we go back and forth on stuff like fonts and making the color right and blah, blah, blah. She's amazing. And her eye is just outstanding. And I don't think the books would be nearly as successful if I had not found her. Nice. So uh, let's talk audiobooks because I only listen to all to books now. I actually oh. have a hard time reading in a, a book because I've been listening to audiobooks for way too long. Um, but so my question to you is, um, do you have a, you know, what you're pub self-publishing. So what kind of say do you have in the narrators? How are you finding them? Um, what are you going through um, to get them? And then um, did you always have, did you always want to have your books on audio? Yes. Uh, I love audiobooks. And like you, I now mainly listen to books. And like you, I also now just find that my eyes are like, what, you want me to like read this thing? Like, what? <laughs> it's weird because I'm like a lifelong reader. It's always been my greatest hobby. And now I'm just like, I think I want to play Uno and listen to this book. <laughs> Oh man, me and Uno, it's really getting dark. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, so I was really excited when, so basically you you can self-produce audiobooks, um, but I take so long writing books that producing an audiobook is just not really a hobby that I wanted to take on. So we were approached by a couple of audiobook um, companies that license books from authors and um, my publisher, my audio publisher is called Listen Up and they were amazing with letting me pick the narrator. Basically they, um, I told them kind of like what we wanted, you know, a woman with a British accent who could, or who could do a, a passable sort of Britishy accent. Um, and then they sent me like seven different auditions, uh, of like a couple lines from the book just to get a vibe. And then I chose one that sounded the most sort of in keeping with uh, 
I don't know, the way that I had sort of imagined the character sounding. I, I For that book, I really wanted, it was the, they sent me auditions for the first book in the series, The Duke I Tempted, and I really wanted to make sure the character could do like drama because it's a really, really, really dramatic book. So the way she did accents was less important to me and the way that she sort of conveyed a kind of like dark brooding energy and can like really kind of ramp up the drama was more important. Um, and I found one who I just thought that her read was extremely dramatic in a way that appealed to me. So then we gave her um, like a full chapter to do that had both uh, the hero and heroine in it so that we could make sure that she sounded like convincing enough for both of them. And she did great. Um, and she has gone on to narrate all three of the Charlotte Street books. And I think she's done a great job. I really like her work. I especially, um, I love the way she did the Earl I Ruined, I think she knocked it out of the park. But in general, she's she's great. I, like, I've like i stuck with her the whole time because I think she does a, a great job and brings a good energy to the text. <laughs> so another quick question about Audible. Um, there, Audible um, unleashed, unleashed, uh, <laughs> released <laughs> Audible Escape, which is like a membership just for romance. Um, and I noticed that one of your books is in the Audible Escape, you know, thing. And I'm wondering how that works, um, like how that works for you, how, um, like how authors who are in that category get paid and, and is it worth it? Is it beneficial? Mm. So I don't know that I know the details because the way that I get paid for audiobooks is via Basically, it's like I have a an audiobook deal where I wrote the original book and then we license the audio rights for a period of whatever, so many years to an audio publisher called Listen Up. They then um, pay me in advance. And then after I earn out the advance, I get a return on royalties. So if the book is in that program, it's their choice because they are now the owner to the rights of the book. And so they must have some sort of internal calculation on how they are getting compensated and presumably they want to enhance their revenue. So it's probably some calculation about the volume of listens based on um, whatever the royalty rate is for that program versus the wider audio universe and audible specifically but again like if I had self-produced the audio titles I would probably know exactly the answer to that question um but since it's licensed I don't really I'm not making those decisions gotcha all right let's talk about sex because okay (laughs) about the sex so I love that in your books each relationship has very different sex I think one of my least favorite things about a series is when all the characters might be slightly different, but then once you get in the bedroom, everyone's having the exact same sexual encounter with the exact same like kiss on the neck. And then they suck a nipple and then they do that. Like, it's like, (laughs) not that I don't like those things, but I appreciate that each, each grouping or pairing rather had their own kink and their own sort of vibe so my question is, how do you like to, you just kind of like blurt it all out on paper and then come back from it? Do you already in your mind know like, ooh, I think this character is going to be sort of like the dominant one of this relationship. I think this is the type of sex that character would have. How does that, how do you write that sex? I 
usually think of various different arcs happening in the plot, like a character arc for both of the hero and heroine, a plot arc. And then I like to think of a sexual arc because I think in a romance novel, they're really a portrait of intimacy. Like that is why we read them, right? We want to feel intimately involved in the love story and we want to feel like, we want to feel the way the character feels while they're falling in love, which is a twofold process of both falling in love with the other person. And then in my opinion, falling in love kind of with like who you are in their eyes in this relationship. And I think part of that is the sort of sexual and physical intimacy, um, you know, as it develops. And so it's gotta be excruciatingly specific in the same way that like, you're attracted to someone's sense of humor or I don't know, the way they meticulously fold papers on their desk or their ability to arrange riotous flower arrangements that move something inside of you for reasons you just don't understand, you know, like it's all so specific. So yeah, I mean, I think, um, I don't even remember what the original question was, but yes, sex scenes, very specific, very different for each couple. I don't know another way to write them. I don't really feel like they're different from writing other scenes. I take just as much care with them and I, I'm trying to do something in every single sex scene. Like there's never one that's just there to like arouse us. I want them to arouse us. Like if you call my book a one-hander, I'm very pleased, <laughs> but I want it to also be doing character work and plot work and adding tension to certain things. You know, like it's, if it's not firing on all cylinders, then I'm sorry, like, even if it's hot, I'm going to cut it, you know? Um, and often I do cut sex parts because I feel like they are very sort of, it, sometimes when I write them, I'm like just blocking it out. And it's like, and then he touches this, and then she does this, and blah, 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 blah. And then she got wet. And then he was like, cool. And then it's like so much like, and maybe you get like half a sentence from those four things, you know, because it's not really about who touches what when, it's kind of about the response that that touch elicited and why, and then how the other person is then like reading that response and either becoming excited by it or scared of it or, you know, curious. Um, yeah, the same way really like they would have a conversation or go down the route of a mystery and find a new clue. <laughs> I think that's, that's, go ahead, Bridget. I'm just going to call, I'm not going to call you out because you said it on the podcast, but I'm going to tell you, Charlotte, uh, that when we are reading uh, Julian and Charlotte's scene with Constance. the apple, Constance, oh, the apple. <laughs> I don't know why I said Charlotte, Constance is the apple, Shawnee was like, have I been sleeping on apples my whole life? <laughs> you know, I was just like, well, what was she potentially have in her room that would be round I don't know I couldn't think of like no it was awesome <laughs> it was so good she's like I've been sleeping on apples Bridget <laughs> it was so good I yeah I I actually think that I really like the way that you said it it's not so much about who's touching who where it's about like if I touch your neck like what do you shudder like are you excited and then yeah. re like that sort of back and forth I like it I, I think that's like um the I, I like that because it, for me it feels energy based and I and like I told you I'm pretty new to kink it's been like a year since I to start taking my classes and stuff um, and never realizing that I was an energy pay, like energy based sexual person you know like having sex and real and being like this is not working for me but not knowing why that why it's not working for me 
you know? And so it's funny because now with my second partner, he's very much an energy-based person. It's a kink relationship. Um, but his thing is always based on reaction. What, like, what reaction is he getting from a thing that's happening? And for me, that like blew my mind. I was like, this is, this is crazy. How can you, how can you be my age and like have never, you know, <laughs> like known this? There's got to be so many people, but, but um, I find that very interesting. And that's what I really like about your books is that I feel the energy and the tension um, brewing and it doesn't feel like um, it's coming out of nowhere. Everything for me in your books feels justified. Um, the buildup lets me know where I'm going. Um, and that's kind of a thing that I've been, I feel like I've read a, a, quite a few books now where I'm like, I don't feel like, like things are earned or justified in the story. So I enjoy that. I say that all to say, I enjoy that. that. Thank um, you. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I have a question about, um, this is actually interesting because I, my main genre is historical. Um, and uh, right now we're dealing a lot with um, different like diversity in romance, whether it be the authors, the characters, um, that sort of thing. Um, and there are rarely any brown people in historical. Let me tell you, it's my, mm. the saddest part of my life right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but how do you deal with, um, I mean, how do you deal with like diversity in your characters, diversity, wanting to put diversity into your books, what that looks like? What do you feel like your responsibility may be in that in that space? Yeah, that is something that I struggled with so much as like early in my writing career because I felt like I didn't want to take on uh, like the experience of a marginalized person in a way that was not extremely sensitive and extremely intuitive and sensitive to like both the historical moment and the psychology of living in that moment. And I don't know, I felt like I was like newer as a writer and I just wasn't sure I could do it well. And if I wasn't going to do it well, I just felt like I, I didn't want to do it badly. Like it was less harmful to do it badly than to have a narrower representation in my works. Like I am a white woman from an upper middle class background. Um, you know, I've, I've always lived in diverse places like New York and London and Los Angeles, and I have a relatively diverse group of friends, but I'm not writing contemporary romance where I can just draw from their experience and be like, yo, is this like, like, be real with me? Like, does this suck? Like, I don't, uh, it, it was just tough for me to try to think like, how do I do a sensitive portrayal of like, let's say like a black character living in a time when like slavery is still legal and abolition isn't even really like, like in the forefront of people's minds quite yet. And colonialism is just getting started. You know, there's just, it felt like a can of worms. And I wish that I had been a little bit braver, but I also am kind of glad that I wasn't because I just really don't want to do like an offensive job of portraying those things. Um, as I've grown up as a writer and feel a little bit more uh, confident in my craft of characters, regardless of their sort of background, um, I just sort of feel more like, okay, like I'm going to make this a person and I'm going to make sure that I have sensitivity readers and that I'm drawing on every single historical detail I can to try to do like 
as much justice to this person as possible. But I do want to create diverse worlds that reflect, you know, the world that I live in and the world that I'm portraying because London, which is where most of my books are set in the 18th century, was super diverse. So um, that is to say that the Charlotte Street books begin very white. Uh, it's going to broaden out, like, as you get deeper into the series. Um, like, there are several characters. I'm also working on a series of shorts. Um, that will like introduce more people in that world. And that will be a much more sort of diverse cast, both in terms of like their racial and ethnic heritage, but also like the um, uh, gender identities and like the kinds of relationships they're having in terms of like having same sex partners or whatever, you know, like it's just gonna be a lot more. Uh, it's not gonna be the just cis het white characters that I began writing at the beginning of the series because I just don't feel like that's interesting or accurate and I now feel like I can hopefully you know do a good job of like making any character a character without getting bogged down in my concerns about uh like doing it wrong as a white person although I still as a white person don't want to do it wrong <laughs> um my next book the society of sirens uh it's more um diverse already like the three women one is um like a white sort of upper class woman the second heroine um in the second book in the series is black um from like an aristocratic family biracial she has one black parent and one white parent um and so um I'm trying to make sure that the world of that book um does justice to both sides of her heritage and that it's not just like she's like the lone black lady in this sea of white faces, but that there's, you know, like she's drawing from different parts of society and we're showing the intersections of all these things, showing the intersections of how feminism like sort of dovetailed with the abolitionist cause, which dovetailed with the anti-monarchy cause. In general, it's just a much more sort of diverse cast that's going to touch more on different aspects of love and race and gender and <laughs> lived experience of all people, <sighs> which is a long way of saying it is deeply important to me. Um, I don't know that I've done a great job with it in the past. I want to do better and I am trying very hard to like be um, diverse in the way that I portray the world. So are you like are you I don't know willing I guess is maybe the word to not have it be historically accurate because Shawnee always talks about like I don't even care if it's historically accurate I just want brown yeah. people like, <laughs> like yeah. is it something where you're like oh I have to figure out how this could actually fit or is it something where you're like this could just be an aristocratic family of black people why not <laughs> or brown people oh my god why not? like you know like much to do about nothing like much to do about nothing you have you have Keanu you got Denzel Washington, their <laughs> brother. I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. No, um, I think yes and no. Uh, in, okay, so like I know that um, the Julia Quinn Netflix series they're making, they've kind of made that choice. Like they're just casting like a diverse cast and I don't think that it's like necessary, ex necessarily explained why the Bridgertons, it hasn't come out yet. Um, but, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you didn't know this? They're making that a series on Netflix? Dude, yes! You just, you just fucked up my life right now. <laughs> just, I love 
about that series. Okay, I'm sorry. Keep going. Keep okay. going. We'll talk so, about that later. Adding to your desire to see brown people in historical, they've cast it with a great deal of like, there's brown people, there's Asian people, there's white people, there's, you know, like, and that book, like the series, if you just read the source material, it's all very white. Um, and they've just made the decision to, like, I believe it's produced by Shonda Rhimes. Or, wait, is that wrong? Hold on. Let me look it up. Um, oh, my God. Why are you looking at that? Sure. I'm just trying to freak out for a little bit because one, <laughs> of that series, probably read it many, many times over and over again. And, like, just the fact that they're, that that's happening is, like, <laughs> blow, blowing my mind because every time, I mean, we talk about and ask people, like, hey, are, are, is your work being optioned? Are, is it going to be anywhere where people can see it visually? And usually the answer is, like, yes, a company has optioned it, but... Bridget and I, you know, we come from this world. Just because something gets optioned yeah. doesn't mean that it will ever get made, yeah. you know? And, and so I'm not holding my breath to see if, if you know, a lot of these things are getting made. So the, the fact that this is getting made right now, they've they've cast it. Yeah, they have. Like, no, I just, I just fact-checked it. Shonda Rhimes is the person who's producing it, and it is a diverse cast, and it will be on Netflix. And Julia Quinn has, like, posted all sorts of delightful pictures of her being on set like this is in production I don't know if it's yeah. being slowed down by COVID but yes you will see brown Bridgertons <laughs> I'm excited about yes that. oh my <laughs> god oh my god Sorry, <laughs> Julie, Julie Andrews is gonna be in it oh my god no <laughs> no why are you making my whole life right now why is I'm just losing it. I'm trying to like hold it together. You have no idea how hard I'm trying to hold it together right now. Well, like a laugh cry in a weird, awkward type of way. Like, wow. This is like my dream come true. This is uh, like this is like when I found out like my that my my on my mom's side they came from Prince Edward Island and I was like, oh my god, I could have been Anne Shirley. I could have been Anne Shirley. <laughs> that is incredible. <laughs> You can just claim her as like a relative, a distant relative. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Oh man. I have a question because I'm noticing that I'm not gonna call it out, but I'm noticing that your name on the screen mm. is not Scarlett Peckham. Is that oh, yes. yeah, it is a pen name. Scarlett is my actual middle name. Um and Peckham is my former neighborhood in London where I began my romance novel career and also one of my favorite neighborhoods in the world. So Scarlett Peckham is a pen name. I chose a pen name because I was still working in PR, like when I started writing and I did like uh fancy, somewhat scary PR for like private equity companies and banks and whatnot. And I just didn't really want the bankers who I was working with to Google me and be like, wow. <laughs> Um, but then I also sort of thought that Scarlet Peckham was a much better uh, brand name for historical. Historical. Yeah, it just felt like a good name. Um, so I'm attached to it. I like it. <laughs> As, aside from your former banker colleagues, how mm. have the rest of the people in your life responded to it? Because we've been hearing a little bit of both where we've been hearing people who are like everyone in my life is supportive. They all love it. And we've often heard a few authors who've said that, you know, they've had some people who are like, ha ha, you just write, you just like want to write about sex. <laughs> um, lucky for me, I do not have the ha ha. You just want to write about sex people um, as my nearest and dearest. So um, I feel like there is sometimes a little bit of like, people have a couple drinks out at parties and they're like, so <laughs> 
how do you research those sex scenes? And then I just do like a really, really long, obnoxious, like sort of pseudo intellectual account of like reading 18th century cultural biographies of prostitution (laughs) and and their eyes glaze over. Um, So (laughs) the joke backfires. Um, But no, my, my family are all super supportive. My friends love my books and like talk to me about them and buy them. My dad will like randomly like every couple let's say years he just picks up a scarlet peckham book and starts sort of live texting me his reactions i know shawnee's shaking her head she's like no fucking way that is kind of my reaction to you dude my dad a hundred percent would read it he'd be thrilled he'd be like oh my god bridge what a great scene on chapter 12 i loved it like he is that dad and i wouldn't be embarrassed because like I, that's just the relationship we have. Like he would be like high fiving me. Yeah, like yeah. He, of my family, my sister listens to the podcast, and she's actually going to be a guest, uh, oh, nice. uh, like a guest host, um, coming up. But I think my mom's maybe caught one or two episodes. But like my dad's the one who, like, if he listened, I'd be like, let's chill. Like <laughs> <laughs> we talk about sex all the time. He already knows all these stories. It's chill. <laughs> my, my dad literally whenever I pass him, like. Uh, he knows I'm coming to do the podcast. He's always like, are you going to go talk about your smutty books? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, like, I just, yes, I am. Every, every time, because, because sex and my parents is, is like, you know, not even like oil and, and water. It's like, I don't know what the two most separate things can, uh, can be, you know, like <laughs> we, sex in my house is something that's just not talked about. And I have since, since COVID hit, I'm home with my parents. I'm oh, wow. with them. As, like, I came cause my dad had gotten ill at the start of COVID. And oh. then I just can't get back home because I don't have a place to quarantine at. So I've been here for like three and a half months or almost four oh, months man. now. Where is home? My um, in California, in Santa Monica. Okay. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like without my partners, and I am like, honestly, at the end of my rope, I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm like, I need to go home. I need a booty call. But <laughs> <laughs> but since I've been here, I was very open with my parents about being polyamorous. So they know I have two partners, and everybody's like, "Don't tell them." I was like, "I'm gonna tell them." <laughs> um, and uh, my dad thinks he's very progressive for accepting my lifestyle. He told my Yay. sister that <laughs> the other day. He's like, "What? I'm I I accept." <laughs> but my parents both have been really good about it. Um, but, but I have been talking to them more about BDSM, more about kink and stuff like that, which are like no, no conversations. And they have been, I've, I've tried to be really matter of fact in my outward appearance, but inside I'm cringing. Like I'm cringing (laughs) so hard when I see like my, my parents faces and they just nod and they're trying to be accepting, but Oh my God, it is it's been an experience. Let me tell you. <laughs> I feel like uh, your, your parents shouldn't front though. They, what do you have? Six siblings? Like your parents ooh, were fucking, hi. come on. You were busy. Low key though. I, my, my parents, we found their sex letters, right? When we were what? young, we found they're freaks. My parents are freaks. Okay. Because my, my mom and dad were, were on the road, right? They're traveling musicians. They're on the road all the time. And then there was a point in time where, um, my mom would stay home, but my dad was still the manager. So he was on the road and my mom would be home. So they would send letter- letters back and forth. And we found a box of the raunchiest, nastiest oh. letters you'll ever see, you oh know? And you know the funniest thing? The funniest thing is when I was much younger, probably like, I don't know, probably like eight or so, 
I found, do you ever see those little finger condoms? Like when you cut your finger? Yeah. Or maybe it was 10. You cut your finger, you put it on to keep it from getting wet, right? Uh-huh. So like I knew what a condom was. My brother told me what a condom was, right? And I saw that little thing and I was like, oh, it's a tiny condom. And I was like, oh, I think my dad's penis sh- like shrivel, it shrank. It's like, <laughs> now, he has to wear, now he has to wear tiny condoms. <laughs> and this is why you talk to your kids about sex. This is why. Okay, Otherwise they make just up. make up shit in their minds. <laughs> oh my God. I am in love with this story. My poor dad has shrunken penis and his tiny condoms. <laughs> Did you have a theory of what had happened to it to make it shrink? <laughs> Actually, I just thought, I thought that if you played with it too much, it would shrink. Like, oh boy. Because that was always a thing. Like my mom would always tell my brothers, like, don't touch, don't touch your stuff. Don't touch your stuff or whatever. And I thought, you know what? He touched it too much. And it's small. <laughs> Oh my god! I've never wow. told my parents. <laughs> Thank God they'll never listen to this podcast. I hope your dad's like standing outside the door right now, and he's just like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> Scarlett, this has been a goddamn delight. I know. I love Thank talking to you guys so much. <laughs> I want you to tell the people how they can support you aside from buying your books, you know, is there merch? Is there Patreon? Is there what's what, how can they connect with you? Let the people know. Uh, yeah, just, you know, like Google Scarlet Peckham, you'll, you'll find, you'll find all my shit. Um, you can support my books by buying them mainly. Uh, you can buy them on my website. I will sign them for you and send them, uh, with beautiful stickers and other delightful things that I have laying around my office. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Scarlet Peckham or on Twitter also at Scarlet Peckham. Don't really look for me on Facebook. I don't really hang out there. Um, uh, my website is www.scarletpeckham.com. You're sensing a theme here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like, did there. I I like did consistency. There. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I, I hope someday in the future we can all be at an event in LA again, like the time that we met. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh yes. yeah. Fun, fun fact, friends. I'll probably tell everyone at the beginning, but I'll tell them at the end too. We <laughs> actually met Scarlett in real life at the first ever book panel that Shawnee and I attended and for Romance at a Glance. And it was so much fun. And that's how we discovered her books. That's how we decided to review them. And and we have been swooning ever since. Oh that is actually you. that is I forgot that is how we discovered it because we saw the panel and they were like, okay, oh. what authors are going to be there? And then we're like, okay, well, let's read their books beforehand, you know? Yeah. And so we would, I probably wouldn't have found your books or at least it would have taken a while if we hadn't gone to that panel. Oh, so well, cool. that was a bookstore romance day panel, which is where indie bookstores support the romance industry and hold fun events. So good job, bookstore romance day, just connecting the romance yes. fans and writers of the world, making beautiful <laughs> podcasts happen. Yes. <laughs> I need to know, is, is this your dream job? Is this your dream job? If not, what is your dream job? No, this is definitely my dream job. I mean, I always wanted to be a writer and I always loved reading romance novels and I feel like I found a real niche for myself. Yay! <laughs> Yay! That's awesome. That's really awesome. 
Well, we are so happy that you did. And Thank hopefully you. we'll have you on the podcast maybe next year when your next book comes out. I am happy to Talk chat again. with you anytime, anytime. You guys, was this not like the most fun thing ever? I know that she was one of our season one authors, but we hadn't actually established authors at a glance yet. So we were so happy that she was available to come on the show, even though uh, we were not reading her in this current season. And it's actually kind of kismet because we're about to roll into season four, which is all historicals. So it actually ended up working out pretty well, if I do say so myself. Thank you so much to everyone who has joined us. We have a ton of new people listening to the podcast. We have a lot of fun coming up next week. We're interviewing Jen DeLuca, who wrote Well Met, which we reviewed in season three. And then we'll have a little tease of what's going on in season four. And then season four is going to start, you guys. We're going to hit you with 10 historicals. Shawnee picked them out. Some of them are books that she's read before. Some of them are new books. All of them are titans in the old genre. If you guys like our show, show uh come talk to us on instagram follow us like us share our stuff that'd be super helpful let your friends in romance know let them know that we're a fun duo of gals to hang out with and talk romance with and talk sex with and also if you really love the show and want to support us you can also go to patreon.com forward slash romance at a glance that is where we are we have some really really fun perks thank you to everyone who's already a patron it means the world to us it's really helping offset you know, cost of running the website, cost of hosting the podcast, advertising to find new people, um, branding, and things of that nature. Guys, this has been just such a fun season. Season three, while we had ups and downs in terms of whether we like the books or not, we are really gaining momentum, and that is all due to you. And we cannot be happier to have you here and to be serving you up some really cool author interviews and to be getting ready to serve you up historicals you guys shawnee is like creaming her pants she is having so much fun picking these books out going through all your recommendations and you know just in general about to dive into 10 historicals she could not be happier i am also happy to support her in this journey and to read some historicals i'm just kidding i think it's gonna be a really fun time so stick around Uh, Make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening to your podcast. Make sure that you are tuned in as these new interviews and episodes drop. So happy to have you here. And as we always say, until then, may your books be your lover and your hand your best friend.